hey, when it comes to health, you probably have some of the same disqualifications that I do. You sit all day, you run a busy life, and when you do make it to the gym, the only thing you're really qualified to do is turn the treadmill on. I was an athlete in high school, and so I could have thrown swimming in the mix, but that was about it. And I didn't really know what to do when I decided that I needed to get my health under control, especially since I have type 2 diabetes and I want to be around for my kids. So I contacted my friend JC over at DevLifts, and DevLifts, they did me a huge, huge, huge favor. Sure, it's a paid service, but what they did is they gave me a workout program. They also gave me some eating guidelines, and they have a Slack room where I can go and I can ask questions, and they give weekly challenges on things that I need to do differently. I really, really love it. So if you're looking for a way to get into shape, you're looking for a way to improve your health, then go check them out at devlifts.io. That's D-E-V-L-I-F-T-S dot I-O. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. David Richards. Hello. We also have a new rogue, and that's Catherine Myers. Hello, hello. Yay! <laughs> you want to give us just a quick update introduction since, uh, you know, maybe people missed your episode before? Yeah, so I was on an episode, what was that, last month, um, talking about the parallels between music and code. I am one of those 30-something career changers uh, that came to code um, from an entirely different career. I was an opera singer before. Uh, so uh, while learning to code and starting this career, I discovered all of those parallels between music and code and talked about it for a bit. Nice. You know, I should learn to code. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have a special guest this week, and that's Noah Gibbs. Hey, folks. Uh, now, Noah, you've been on the show before, but it's been quite a while. So you want to remind people who you are? Sure. Uh, I wrote a book called Rebuilding Rails a while back, which is basically understanding Ruby on Rails by uh, using the, the Ruby metaprogramming features that make it work. And you basically take a feature or two and one system of Rails every chapter, and you build your own little Rails-like thing. And at the end, what you have basically kind of looks like a Rails app when you, when you write it, but you've built the framework underneath it instead of focusing on building the app. Uh, I often say it's understanding Rails as really just Ruby. Uh, I've also done some stuff with deployment. I've also done some other things. But right now, for, for more than a year here, uh, my gig has been analyzing Ruby performance for a company called Appfolio that's sponsoring a Ruby fellow uh, position for me. You can kind of think of me as, as Ruby's open source performance data scientist. I spend a lot of time making graphs and stuff for how Ruby performance is doing, oh, and especially using Rails as a benchmark for Ruby. You know, one of the problems historically with Ruby is the developers, as amazing as they are, are not web guys. That's not what they do day in and day out. They're language people. That's why they work on an interpreter. Uh, and so Rails Ruby Bench is my benchmark to use Rails as a, as a benchmark for Ruby. And so I'm kind of doing a liaison there between the Rails community and the Ruby community as much as I can. And so that, that's my gig lately. Uh, plus, I have a two-month-old daughter. So really, my gig lately is that. And then I, I work when I can find time. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you very, very much. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, you have a number of blog posts about this. Do you want to just uh, tell people where those are and how they can find them, and then we can dig into this performance stuff? Absolutely. Uh, so engineering.appfolio.com is where the blog posts always go up first. Uh, it has a whole lot of performance stuff. It has occasional other random stuff from other Appfolio folks. I, I find it interesting. I always read it. Um, you'll also see occasional non-performance things from me because, you know, I've got a blog, might as well use it. Uh, if you follow Ruby Weekly, 
uh, which is wonderful. I recommend it highly. Um, a very high percentage of my stuff also winds up in Ruby Weekly. So you can you can see it either of those places, whichever form factor works for you. Gotcha. So I'm going to kind of kick off the conversation um, briefly and just talk about some of the things that I found interesting. One was that, um, and this the thing that I find interesting about this is that in the Japanese community, they are not as bullish on Rails as we are here in the American community. And so since you chose a Rails app as your sort of benchmark tool, you're doing a lot of this performance stuff with discourse. Um, do you find that it's widely applicable globally or is it more interesting just to folks here in the U.S.? So bullish is an interesting word there. I would actually say that regardless of whether they're, whether they're bullish on Rails, whether they think it'll do well in the future, they're just doing a lot of non-Rails stuff. You yeah, find that the English-speaking community right. doesn't, doesn't do as much non-Rails stuff, whereas they use Ruby in like automotive stuff and embedded applications. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like non-web stuff going on there. Uh, I will say that while that makes my benchmark a little less applicable in Japan, I, I agree. You're totally right on that. Um, that's actually kind of a good thing. Because the Japanese guys have historically felt a little awkward because there's this whole Rails thing going on that is, again, for the core team, mostly isn't what they do. Um, and so I, I kind of get the impression that it's a relief to have somebody who's just running the, the Rails benchmarks constantly to let them know how it's going. Um, is, is it less applicable globally? Um, I think Rails is going to continue to rise and fall. Uh, I think that web technology is is prone to fashions for the same reason there's a new JavaScript framework every week. Uh, and I think that Rails still doesn't have anything that's really surpassed it at what it's good at. Uh, but I think you're going to have times when the when it goes up and when it goes down. And so I think you're going to see that my benchmark is also what's tied to the fortunes of Rails, right? If you look at mm-hmm. if you look at Ruby, like you look at web searches, you look at popularity, you look at people talking about jobs, you look at job postings. In the English speaking world, Ruby co- goes up and down with Rails. Yep. It, it, it's amazing how close the correlation is. And that's what's different in Japan is if you look at those same graphs just for Japan, it doesn't do that. Uh, and so I think that, yeah, it's it's not that my benchmark or the rail stuff is, is not applicable globally. Um, but I think what I'm really doing is taking... It, well, is answering the the English-speaking side, okay, Ruby, but Ruby is about Rails, so what does this do for Rails? And I'm kind of, I, I am, I am, you know, giving kind of the American perspective on the um, English speaking perspective on this, not just the American perspective. Um, and yeah, the Japanese guys, you know, if they're not doing rails, they've already got this answer to their satisfaction. My benchmark makes a lot less difference to them because they already mostly had what they want. You know, it's, it's not that Ruby does a bad job of measuring performance. They actually do a really good job. It's just that there's historically been this blind spot where rails isn't in their top, you know, list of three things to answer as far as how the performance is doing. Whereas As a Japanese guy, I approve Rails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, and it's not that you don't see Rails at all in Japan. You totally do. It's just that in the English-speaking world, Ruby rises and set, sets with Rails. Like yeah. every graph, every mm-hmm. everything, it's just Rails defines Ruby. And that's what's not true in Japan. It's not that there's no Rails. There's totally Rails in Japan. It's just it's not, it's not the, the everything, the A to the Z. Another interesting aspect of that is that I talk to a lot of folks in Europe and a lot of European developers are using Hanami instead of Rails. And so, you know, the same kind of thing. And, and I think I think the way that you've addressed this, you know, addresses both areas, but it's it's interesting just to see, you know what, this is more impactful for some communities over others. Uh, absolutely. And, and the thing about any real world benchmark, when I say real world, you know, I'm using discourse, I'm using Rails. It's, now, it's a, a specific little area. 
Well, I mean, a general purpose language can be used for everything. If I do a web dev benchmark, sure, the web devs are going to care a lot more about it. And that's mm -hmm. appropriate. If I did a machine learning benchmark, the machine learning devs would care a lot more about it. Yep. Yeah. So uh, just related to that, then, how do you put benchmarks around discourse? Because uh, you know, discourse is kind of this fully built integrated system, right? Mm -hmm. And Ruby has its benchmark libraries. And so you do a thousands times if blah, 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 just to make sure the if is fast, right? Yep. Uh, how do you approach it with a fully fledged app, especially one that is continuing to be developed? Uh, the short answer is that it's messy and requires a lot of tooling. Uh, the closest to a good short answer I've got is I bake discourse and the load tester and a bunch of other stuff into an Amazon AMI, into an EC2 disk image, machine mm -hmm. image, uh, and then run the specific set of experiments um, on that disk image. Uh, there are a few things that I do that are that are not perfect real-world scenarios. It's, there's always a, a balance in a benchmark, right? Like a perfect real-world scenario is going to be really noisy and really variable, and it's going to be uh, it, it's going to be hard to get great results because the real world is messy, uh, and so you get to choose how much to trade it off. I have a fairly real-world benchmark as they go, which means I get kind of messy results, and I need a lot of tooling. Um, but I build the load tester and the database and the app and all of that into a single EC2 image. I set it going on a dedicated instance. I don't have it do anything over the EC2 network because there's so much noise built into that that it makes an enormous difference in the tests. Um, but yeah, I make it into an EC2 image and I run it as a big virtual machine for a long time. Every benchmark run is basically how I do that. And there's a lot of tools around it to assemble it in pieces. <laughs> One of the one of the lovely things about Appfolio sponsoring this work is I don't have to pay my own EC2 bill. <laughs> they, they pay for a budget. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, Appfolio. Thank you. <laughs> uh. So working through these these benchmarks and, and and really putting the lens where where people care, does it? I'd imagine that it, it gets a lot more. Uh, the, the 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 web community maybe i don't know maybe it's not fair to say that we ever left ruby but it's a lot easier to stay embraced with ruby if we can see that oh yeah this is working well it always has yeah so i agree with you what i'll say is there's two fairly distinct audiences for a thing like rails or any of its competitors you know node.js or lyft and scala or you know any of these things uh, and one are the folks who are coming through to learn something new that's good for their resume that's maybe interesting that opens their mind up a little bit and the other group are the folks who want to do something solid with it that needs to keep working and those two groups are it's not that there's no overlap but they're pretty distinct mostly that's two two pretty separate groups um the kind of people that come through because it's the hot new thing or I want to learn something new, when I come in and I say, oh, it's improving in speed 10 to 15% every year, here's the numbers on that, here's the how it's granted, they don't care. That's not why they're here. Uh -huh. uh, and I don't, I don't mean that as a bad thing. What I mean is that Rails has been transitioning over time, year by year by year, from it's the hot new thing to this is solid, it has a really good business case, this is the right thing to do for this set of people doing this important thing that makes money. And those people care a lot about, are we still speeding it up? Did we speed it up? You know, How much of the performance is as bad as they say? There was this whole Rails doesn't scale thing. How true is it? Um, and so a lot of what I'm doing is taking that second group of people that have stayed with us for longer and putting their mind at ease. Because if what you want is to say, you know, Ruby is this neat, wacky thing and you're going to learn a lot by doing it, or it's the hot new thing and you're going to get a job, that's not 
mostly most of those people don't care about the stuff that I'm doing. I'm I'm not afraid of scaring them off with the stuff that's all graphs and mathematics and you know the the exact method I use for the measuring and all of that because those people are scared off by that, right? If you have right. a vast quantity of detail that seems kind of boring, that's not what those people are there for. Whereas if the business people show up and I say, here's the top line executive summary of what you actually want to know for your business. Now here's many paragraphs of stuff that you can go hand off to your math geeks to verify that I'm not lying. That's exactly what they want. That's mm-hmm. the kind of yeah. Well, it, it, if you were running a business and somebody said, I hear this Rails doesn't scale thing, you, Bob the engineer, I want you to check this if this is true for me, give me the numbers on it and do it so that, you know, Jane, the engineer next to you can actually verify your work. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm putting in the blog post. Well, I like how your blog posts do that. You'll have the whole section for the, for, for the pedant. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, the details are there if, if you need them. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a lot of it, right? I understand most people don't want that. I mean, I, I love it. I always read through those sections, but there's a reason it's my job. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, most people would just want to be able to point at it and say, I am confident this is true. Here's how you would verify. Uh, One of my proudest achievements, although I I doubt that Mots has actually read through almost any of my, my blog posts, maybe none of, probably none of my blog posts, but he points at them when he says things like Ruby gets about 10% faster for Rails every year, because that's, you know, I'm, like most mathematicians working through serious, you know, grindy stuff, I'm an insurance policy. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really, you know, why people are going to come to Ruby. We get 10% faster every year. Like, no, nobody comes to a language for that. You come to a language because it does this cool thing. And here's your insurance that it's not a terrible choice. What I'm doing is to help with the insurance. It's not a terrible choice. And it isn't. I mean, it's, I, I'm not saying I'm lying about this. Like, I have to be telling the truth or it doesn't work. But that's what I'm doing is saying, this is a solid business choice. Here's why it's a solid business choice. And the people who stuck around, because if you are doing a consumer-facing on-the-internet web app where you want to test your, your San Francisco-style you know, marketing hypotheses, nothing has ever come close to Rails. Nothing has ever been as good as Rails. But those guys want to know, what if we do this and it works? can I build a real website off it? And we have the things we point at. We have the various people who have. There are existence proofs. But what I am is to say, no, actually, we keep working on this. We do this all the time. It gets better every year. This is a genuinely sane choice. And we keep working on it. And I love that. I've actually started a habit maybe two months ago where I'm writing down what I believe and why I believe it. Like I'm making these technology choices. Why? And (laughs) I'm going to work on this project. Why? And, and because, you know, knowing my track record, you know, I, it, I can gamble with my time and my effort, or I can actually think, Hey, this is, there's a reason for doing what I'm doing. And um, if I'm wrong, I'm going to learn from it. And if I'm right, I'm going to speak up next time because I'm not it's so many, especially in technology. I don't know why technology is different than the rest of the world, but technology seems to revolve around what's hot. <laughs> and it falls <laughs> popularity instead of performance. And, and that, it's silly that that happens. So I love how you're doing your work and it seems to fit with what's working in my, in my life right now too. I love yeah, how we represent ourselves as rational people and we have a hype cycle. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, I may have bad news for you about most of the rest of the world. yeah and you know i think that the work that you're doing though is really important especially because we have seen a shift in technology lately where things are becoming more and more serverless so a lot of the servers or 
you know, there's always a server behind there somewhere. But a lot of the serverless ideas is that you're not paying uh, for each hour of the usage. You're actually paying for the execution time, you know, for the number of calls or the execution time. So keeping a track of, you know, Ruby speeding up, getting faster and faster, and with Amazon going to be releasing Ruby for the Lambda, it's going to be really important to have the speed, to have the assurance that we're still moving forward with faster execution, which means my overall server costs, if using Lambda functions, is going to be lower and lower. Wait, did you just say Ruby on Lambda? I must have missed that announcement. Uh, it's not been announced yet. <laughs> if you work at a company with a big Amazon bill and you ask your sales representative about it, it's been around and kind of beta and not real stable for years now. Wow. They've been working on it for a while. Yeah. Now, they don't want to make any guarantees about it. It's hard to find. But I've worked at a series of companies with, uh, with non-trivial AWS bills. And I'll tell you, if you ask, they can, they can find you somebody that can make that happen for you. Gotcha. I'm really curious about life of a Ruby fellow. You know, I think you transitioned from a from a from jobs like most of us have where you work for a company and you build their product or you build products for their clients. So, how is it now where Ruby is your product? Uh well, I'll say I've always been pretty Ruby focused. Um, I went through, like, like you say, the kind of jobs we all tend to have. You know, once upon a time, a long time ago, I was a, a junior and then a senior developer in C, and I switched over to Ruby. I don't want to think how many years ago now. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful language. They've been great years. I just, you know, um, and then went through the, you know, the tech lead type positions, and I've done a little bit of managing. You know, the the tech lead position is always in danger of turning into a manager, um, but even even you know, on the side, I've always been a big programmer and a big Ruby programmer for longer than I've been a professional one. Uh, so in some ways, Ruby has been my life for a long time. <laughs> um, the big difference is that when my job is the tech lead stuff and the company's Ruby work, I have a strong tendency to do stuff like rebuilding Rails in my spare time, where I want to go into the really neat metaprogramming type stuff that's beautiful and makes me happy and is hard to justify to the business. And now my day job looks more like that. And so the stuff I do in my spare time looks less like that because <laughs> I'm kind of getting, getting my fix during the day. Um, I'm also a little bit, uh, well, so I've gone from having to be in an office because especially as a tech leader or a manager, you have, you have to be in the office at least very regularly. You know, your, your most productive coding days are always the ones you stay home, but you have to have a lot of the other kind of days. Um, and now I'm working from home in my garage with my um, two, two, two to three homeschooled kids, you know, two homeschooled kids and a baby, uh, and, and my wife who, you know, stays, stays home homeschooling our kids. Uh, and I'll say that's been a massive change, but there's no reason you have to be a Ruby fellow to do that kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but it is wonderful when I've got a, a, an itch to scratch, you know, huh, there's this weird Ruby thing I want to go look at. Like, there's no reason I have to wait till after work for that. I can just sit down and do it. <laughs> your side project that you've been geeking out about is now your day job. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, my, my side projects now look more like, oh, I got myself a Wacom tablet and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, teaching myself to draw. And I mean, I'm also coding, but <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I, I know all, some people are thinking, how do I get that gig? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I will say as far as how do you get that gig, every gig has the stuff that seems like a lot of fun and the stuff that you tend not to think about that you have to do it in that every celebrity gig is also kind of a self-promotion gig. And I will say that the things that did by far the most to get me this gig were to learn things like business negotiation, marketing, writing emails, how you manage an email list, uh, managing a reputation and, and sort of selling people that reputation is its own whole job. And like management, it is a job that is different from a programmer's job. Now, if that if doing that buys you a job you really like, well, I mean, when you go uh, as as a programmer, you're going to have to do a bunch of project management, and you may have to do some management. You've got parts of it that maybe aren't your favorite. I mean, no no offense to the people where the management or the project management are their favorite parts of the job, but as a programmer, you've got some stuff you love and that is amazing, and some stuff that you do to keep the rest of the job going because you you need to, especially if you want a high level job. Um, this job, like every job, has some of those. And so you just figure out what you want to do and you keep working in that direction. Um, a really unusual job like Ruby Fellow or, I mean, think about somebody like Avdi, right? Say, say you decided you wanted to grow up and be Avdi Grimm. I've thought about it. I mean, he, he seems, in a lot of ways, Avdi is an amazing guy and he's, he's easy to look up to. Um, if, you want to if you want to grow up to be Avdi Grimm, one of the skills you need is self-promotion and managing emailing lists and stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. he's, got to pay for, he's got to pay for his lifestyle. Um, in the same way, or if you want to grow up and be David Heinemeyer Hansen, best of luck with that. I'm, I'm not going to manage any year soon. <laughs> if you wanted to do that, one of the first things you can be is the kind of ruthlessly focused on producing monetary value that he is, because all of the other stuff fell out of the fact that he did really well in business. Mm -hmm. You've got to figure out what supports the rest of the job and makes it viable. And then you can get around to, uh, the equivalent of eating all the frosting off the top of the cake. <laughs> I, I love frosting too, but you got you got to build the rest of the cake under it. <laughs> Absolutely. I kind of want to push back over to the benchmarking stuff yes. for a minute. Please. Um, so Matt has been talking probably for the last year or so about Ruby three by three. Yes. And that's the Ruby will be three times faster than Ruby two um, when it gets to Ruby three, and it, it seems like they're doing some things. I've talked to a few people about the JIT. I think we had um, Takashi. Yeah, Kokobun. Kokobun. Yeah, we had him on the show. Um, you know, we talked to a few other people. So they're adding JIT. They're adding, um, you know, just performance fixes. Um, but are we there? Are we there for discourse? We are not there for discourse. We are over twice as fast, but we're not three times as fast for discourse. Okay. Uh, I actually have, it's, it's a little out of date now. It was for Ruby 2.4. We're, we're in the pre-release cycle for 2.6 mm -hmm. now. So it's a little faster now. Uh, but if you go look at my 2017 Ruby Kaigi presentation, uh, where if you don't feel like listening to a lot of the words, you can pretty much just scrub through and look at the graphs one after the other. Uh, I put the conclusions in great big letters superimposed on them. So it should be, if you just, if you just scrub through YouTube, you should be able to get the gist of it in about five minutes. Um, we are, yeah, we're over twice as fast. We're not three times as fast. Uh, JIT is not helping Rails yet. And that is basically because the JIT has been produced at breakneck speed. Um, there are a few things where it's way over three times as fast. And there are a number of things where it's not there yet. Uh, and that's basically because uh, it, it's kind of amazing that it's stable enough to be in even pre-release Ruby yet. 
I mean, con- congratulations and and all my respect to Vlad Makarov, who wrote the original implementation, and then Takashi, who got it to the point where it was acceptable to actually put into Ruby. Like a- amazing mm-hmm. work, both those guys. But it's still early days. It's it's still opt-in. You have to turn on the JIT uh, command line parameter before it starts uh, before it starts doing that. There are going to be some weird cases, and there are more cases where it slows things down a little, which is not that uncommon for a, for a JIT implementation. Um, but right now, Rails is too big, and Rails getting faster is going to depend on them doing a lot of function inlining, and they're still working on that bit. It doesn't do that at all yet. Right. Um, so JIT is going to be the big answer to that. The other thing I'm going to say is that a lot of Rails is hard to speed up because so much depends on I.O. and memory. And you know there are all these things where if you make the CPU speed five times as fast, great. But were you waiting on the CPU? Because if you weren't, that only does you so much yeah. good. Um, I, was, I have been amazed consistently over and over that there is as much room for optimization in Ruby as there is in, in my benchmarks. I did not expect to see Rails getting 10% faster every year because it's not Ruby getting 10% faster. The CPU is getting a lot more than 10% faster every year. 10% is just what, what trickles down to Rails. Um, wow. Yeah. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks and VPNs. Plus they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and long view to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code RubyRogues2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is RubyRogues2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com careers to see their available positions. Yeah, no, the, my numbers are all, again, because I, I build everything into an Ami and time the Ami shoving a vast number of, of HTTP requests through in parallel, um, the numbers I'm getting are all final end-to-end numbers. And so it's kind of crazy that we're seeing 10 and 15% speedups, you know, in minor versions of Ruby. Right. Um, I'm, I am always amazed looking at what the, uh, what the Ruby interpreter team finds to, uh, to squeeze down. And the fact that they've done that much before JIT happened, um, yeah, no, it's, it's frightening how heavily optimized some of these things are, given what they're doing. JIT is just kind of a necessary next step before some of the optimizations that other languages see every day become possible at all. You know, I, I, I love how you know, the language, the framework, these things are getting faster. Has anybody, to your knowledge, worked on quantifying how much faster we are as developers? You know, that we have a, a language we can really grok easily and, and get into. I know it's there. I know I experience it. I just don't know if I could put a number on it. The short answer is that that's really, really hard to measure. Right. <laughs> uh, allow me to, hey, I've got a, I can add this to my picks this week. There's a wonderful ebook called The Leprechauns of Software Engineering. And the short version of the summary of that book is every study you've ever heard of somebody doing about software engineers, let's look at that study. Now, some of them looking at the study is enough. That is to say, you can look at it and say, oh, this doesn't say at all what I thought it said. This is, this is a bad cut and paste from somebody's book without a source. And we can, just, we can just throw it on the floor right now. 
there's there's nothing here. Um, but even for the others, never has there been a study with enough developers to have statistical power that you can actually confidently say they say what they say. Um, many of them have been long ago retracted. Uh, there's a there's a famous study with taking a quiz to determine if people are going to be able to get a good grade in the computer science uh, class based on whether they've got a consistent mental model of assigning variables. That one was actually retracted by the authors not long after it was written. Um, everything I know that tries to study anything like that, it is so hard to get good methodology to study software engineers that you're not going to be able to cite a good study anytime soon because someone would have to put together a good study of software engineering speed. Uh, best of luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the social sciences and start looking at, uh, how do they do this? How do anthropologists figure this stuff out? (laughs) Well, a lot of the answer is they study relatively simple questions where they have good results. They're studying simple questions. And it turns out that once you have a human being look at a big, complicated problem and formulate a giant, complex mental model, and then evaluate the quality of that mental model is not a simple problem. If that's if that's where you're starting out, your problem is already too big, and anything you you try to deduce about it is going to require either a vast number of programmers, which we don't have, or some extremely trivial question to answer, which we don't do. Okay, I'm interesting. I guess add we we do have some episodes coming up related to this. Um, I cool. had a long talk with Greg Wilson, who we've had on the show before, talking about what we know and how we know it, and he introduced me to. Basically, all of the authors of all of the studies that <laughs> that are doing these interesting things to dive into some of these um, issues around why we program the way we program and what what is effective and what's not and how confident we are of that and things like that. So, um, if you are interested in in Dave's question right there, um, stay tuned because those are coming. Awesome, nice. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you um, and. You know, it's it, it's so frustrating when you look at modern statistics because there's so much that you want it to, to already be there and be able to usefully answer. And once you look at what we can actually do with it and what we can prove and where the math is, it suddenly feels like you're banging on a rock with another rock. Mm-hmm. A-B testing's like that, right? Like you look at A-B yeah. testing and you go, oh, we can learn everything. We put the test in place and we analyze the statistics and we go. And then you realize that if you are not selling a thing to individual consumers, preferably a lot of individual consumers, you don't have enough points to usefully measure things, full stop. Statistics seems like it should sort of make your mental model for you. And if you try to use it that way, you discover that that's a very bad idea and you should not do it. Yeah, I... I, I, I... I tend to be able to uh, confuse myself very quickly, <laughs> getting out of the way. Um, yeah. Well, my pick later, uh, it'll be about Ray Dalio, how he did that with his investments, just writing down, you know, yeah. what he's doing, why he's doing it. Well, kind of like what I've been saying. And, and yeah, just if you, it's easy for me to convince myself I was right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to actually see what I have done that. What if I had had a hundred dollars on the line, a thousand dollars, my company, you know, my yeah. career. I'll say the hard part of what I'm doing right now with the writing the, the performance blog posts is not coming up with something interesting to measure. I mean, there's, there's 10,000 interesting things to measure. The world is wonderful that way. The hard part is that I need to come up with how I'm going to measure it and then write a series of simple sentences one after the other for why I think that measures that and do that despite the fact that there's a pretty darn good chance that somebody like Nate Berkopek or Richard Schneeman is going to come along and I know, 
I know that he'll know which of those are the important sentences. And if I screw it up, they'll be able to figure out where I'm playing fast and loose. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason I invite these guys to come look as early as possible in the process. Because if I'm going to screw up something big, I would love to do it before I hit publish. Mm -hmm. Test-driven thinking, test-driven analysis. (laughs) Get, get, get get some feedback. Yeah. But the the healthy thing about this, and I think about these benchmarks in general is if you can, if you can identify the holes, right, you can see, this is what I don't know. Then we can start to really address some of those issues. And the more that we can even shade in a little bit of that space where we just have nothing to really quantify anything, the better off we are. And I think that's what is so exciting to me about your particular test case is that it's a widely used, um, sufficiently complex application that you're pulling in. And so we can say, okay, how does this really affect a Rails app of this level of complexity with these kinds of issues in it? And, you know, so you're shading in some of the lines and then pulling in people like Richard and some of these other folks and saying, you know, what's here? What did I miss? You know, what did I gloss over? What assumptions did I make? You can really start to get a better picture of what's actually going on with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I, so I absolutely agree. I think that's a, that, that's a, a zeroing in on why what I'm doing is important. I'll say the flip side of that is you have to be really careful about making modest yeah. promises <laughs> because we can generally shade in that area, but anytime you roughly shade in an area quickly, uh, you can only honestly do that if you make modest promises, because what people really want to know isn't how fast would it make discourse in a giant, highly parallel situation. What they really want to know is, will this be fast enough for what I'm doing? And so modest right. promises are how you keep from saying, oh, yes, of course, it'll be fast enough for your application. I don't know. What's your application? Well, I think that's kind of how the whole uh, does rail scale thing happen, you know, that people got fast and loose. And, and over on both sides, you know, people just, just over, uh, over, oversimplified everything and said, no, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And yeah, why would you have expected that to have worked? You know, um, you know, there's, there's other ways to do things. And, uh, yeah. well, and you have to oversimplify, right? I mean, even people who are seriously doing their due diligence, choosing rails. And I promise you, if they get around to reading very many of my posts, that is serious due diligence compared to most people, compared to what most people do. Uh-huh. If they, if they come away with perfectly reasonable conclusions like, oh, yes, Ruby's getting 10% faster a year for Rails, that is, that is already so oversimplified, right? I mean, that's, I, I think that that's justifiable. I'm willing, I, I was willing to put that out in public and attach my name to it. I mean, I'm, I think that's a, a thing that you can justify, but everything is oversimplified. You, you can't really know until you put in more work than is a good idea. And so you, you have to. You, know, you have to go on too little information because that's, that's what the world is full of. I think that's a healthy way of looking at it too, because my Rails app may not reflect what Discourse does. And so it's it's faster for Rails, you know, it's 10 for, 10% faster for Rails, give or take whatever my app does different. <laughs> but yeah, nobody wants to hear that, you know, because you put enough caveats on it and then it's, you know, people don't see the usefulness of it where if you're presenting it as, as far as I can tell, it's 10% faster. At least I have something to go on, right? Yeah. Well, and that also gives a point for, here's why I think that. I, I think some, something I wish there was a lot more of in the world and that I think people are terrible about is pointing at their sources. 
I mean, if you come to me and I say it's 10% faster, that's great. But when I do it, I do it in a table of here's all the different things. Here's what it's 10% faster for. Here's my source code. It's not difficult to start at my headline and figure out which direction to dig. Mm -hmm. So what are you adding to the benchmarks these days? I mean, well, what are you looking at to, to give us better information? Sure. Right this second, what I'm doing is making the load tester part of the benchmark that just throws HTTP requests at the servers more scalable. Uh, because the next question I want to get around to, so I do almost everything right now on an EC2 dedicated uh, M4.2x large, which is a pretty sizable instance. It's not you know, you wouldn't run a giant successful startup off it, but your small startup where you're doing the rail stuff and where programmer time is more important than server time, that's a great, you know, it's fast enough, it does well enough, it's cheap enough, developer time is going to more than swamp it. So I, I'm kind of answering the question mainly for, for the way small startups tend to work with Rails. Um, but the next question is going to be, well, what if we get successful? How's it scale? And so the next thing I'm trying to do is scale it up to even larger instances. You know, does Rails scale vertically? Not because how most people do it that way, but because that's going to be their next question. Okay, fine, you know, a reasonably cheap instance that I can use for everything works well. What if, you know, what if I need to go up? And right now, if I try to scale up my benchmark, the answer is it doesn't get any faster. Not because of Rails. Rails is great on that, but because my load testing framework doesn't scale up to the instance it's on. Right. And so, um, so once I get that properly handled, I can show how much faster Rails or how much better Rails scales because um, my benchmark has, has sort of hit the ceiling on its own performance. Your analysis and benchmarks are amazing for seeing where we've been in the past and where we are in the in the present. Um, how can it be used for where we're going to go in the future? Do you think Ruby contributors, Rails contributors can use your analysis? Uh, I think that they do some things like that already. Uh, Takashi has definitely looked at Rails Ruby Bench for a bunch of the stuff he's doing. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's a, a big early success uh, in that category. Um, one thing that it does not currently do well, that it could do better on that in the future is collecting things like operation counts. One thing I'm not currently doing is, is sort of seeing where the work goes right now in such a way that we could figure out what to optimize, you know, for, for that benchmark. And in some ways that's a big strength, uh, as far as accuracy of where it is compared to where we are, that's actually a big strength because they can't over-optimize too much for the benchmark, you know, overtraining if you want to think of it as a, as a machine learning problem. Um, but it's also a weakness because eventually you wind up overtraining for any benchmark you add. It's just, you know, that's how benchmarks work. Um, and being able to collect the operation counts is still useful, even if it lets you cheat the benchmark, because it's, it's nice to profile. It's nice to say, where are the cycles going? You know, what can I speed up that will actually make a difference? Uh, and I feel like that's actually a big weakness of it currently, because by running a big instance full out as fast as it can possibly go, there's not actually a lot of room for analysis. There's not actually a lot of resources for collecting profiling information. So that would that would actually be a much better way to sort of optimize for the future. You're right. I'm definitely optimizing a lot more for the past than present right now. Oh, and partly that was the initial the, the initial demand. The initial reason we cared is to sort of say not will Rails scale, but does Rails scale. Uh, but you're right. That's a that's a very valuable next step that we haven't taken yet. Um, but as far as the contributors looking at it, uh, one of the reasons I started doing this the way I did was looking at the uh, hash tables thing that happened in Ruby 2.4. Uh, many of you probably know that we got a new Ruby hash table implementation in, in Ruby 2.4 that is significantly better for modern processor architectures. Um, some of you may have, may have read either the amazing uh, rubylang.org bug report 
on this, or or my little summary of it. Um, it's called A Story of Passion and Hash Tables, if you Google for it. But I, I basically sort of did a, did a quick write-up because it's it's great. I think you should read the whole bug report. Like, my summary is okay, but you should read the whole bug report. It's great. But the short answer is we had uh, Vlad Makarov, the guy who wound up doing what became Ruby's JIT, sort of parachute in from nowhere and saying, ah, your hash table implementation sucks. Here's a whole new hash table implementation, which mostly was met with silence. Because if you parachute in and say, your hash table implementation sucks, here's a whole new hash table implementation, mostly you're not going to get a great reception on that. Um, but it turned into this wonderful thing where he'd done that. And then uh, Yura Sokolov, a longtime Ruby contributor who does a lot of uh, a lot of performance stuff, came in and said, ah, you're wrong with this open addressing stuff. Don't do it at all that way. Look, here's something that gets most of the same advantages as what you're doing. And in fact, it's even faster, but it doesn't use that thing you used. <laughs> um, and they go back and forth. It's like dueling banjos. Again, read the bug report. I, I can't do it justice. But it's these two cranky Russian developers with better hash table implementations than Ruby has going back and forth with the, yeah, well, you're slow here. I can do this. Yeah, well, you're slow here. I can do this. Um, and then eventually the Japanese guys start getting in. Clearly not entirely sure how to handle this, just, you know, etiquette-wise. <laughs> with the, well, we've, we've tried this, and, and it's actually slower here. Yeah. Ha! Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that could be the next big Hollywood movie, right? <laughs> we can add a char- car chase in there. Yeah, not many people Half would go see it, but I would. I'd go see it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it turns out that, that that was actually kind of weirdly visionary to how the JIT thing worked. Because Vlad, uh, Vlad, Vlad Makarov, the guy who wrote MJIT, the guy who wrote the Ruby JIT, in the same way sort of went, oh, well, we could do better than this. Like here, you, yeah, you've got those constraints. Here, we can make a JIT that works. And he produced this beautiful thing that does that. Oh, and by the way, it changes the entire virtual machine from using a stack-based to, to using register-based. And that gives another 8%. So let's just shove it in there as well. Um, and the Japanese kind of guys kind of look at it and go, well, I mean, we trusted you on hash tables. You're clearly very competent. Yes, this is very fast. None of us can maintain this thing. Uh, well, that's awkward. Um, and they wound up with uh, Takashi, actually, you know, had originally done his own JIT implementation and wound up sort of coming in and going, well, we can take this piece of ImJIT and this piece of ImJIT. And what I get isn't quite as fast, but we know how to maintain it. And so in the same way, you had the kind of Vlad bouncing off somebody else who was more diplomatic. Um, turning it into, you know, what what went in there. Um, yeah, sorry. So I, I, I mentioned I was tying this into Rails Ruby Bench. A lot of what inspired me there was if you look at that bug report, the way they were trying to figure out at the end. Oh, we tried this little Rails app and it winds up slower. Uh, shoot, anybody use Rails? Has anybody got like a mid-sized Rails app? Okay, I'll, I'll write a little a little artificial Rails app. Let's test it against that. They didn't have a benchmark already sitting there. It was a bunch of guys who don't do web stuff going, shoot. Did you have a Rails app? Who put the, where, where did we put the Rails app? Um, you know, to, to, to try and do some performance testing. Uh, and so I thought, hey, what if there was a big definitive Rails app where if they needed to reach to that, they could either they could just pull it off the shelf or they could say, you, you, you do the Rails app, run this, see what these changes do. Um, and so actually, one of my one of my older blog posts was basically sort of going back and reversing time with here were the hash table changes. I'll run it with you know my benchmark in both directions. Here's what my benchmark would have said about that if I had been far enough back in time to have written it. You know, if, if we could have used Rail Ruby Bench to solve that question, here's what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the plan. It, one of the difficulties is that with all this tooling, it's actually kind of a pain to run Rails Ruby Bench. A lot of the way I'm solving that is I, I run it with the new Ruby versions constantly. Like there's, there's a pretty good chance that I'm running it not just for every Ruby minor version that comes out, but several times in between. Um, and that's great, but that makes me the bottleneck. 
Uh, and so I, I just want to say, all the people who said that instead of fully configuring it myself so that I could reach in and change the code, and instead I should be using their Docker container and messing with that, you were right. I was wrong. All <laughs> it would have taken me longer to get set up, but in the long run, you were right. I was wrong. Docker is going to be the way to go. And so I'm going through that you know, kind, of, kind of painful process to change the tooling around to do that. Um, and then other people are going to be able to run it more routinely. That's going to make it a lot easier for the other people to say, I've got this Ruby change. What's it going to do to the speed of a giant parallel Rails app? I mean, I also stuck a little Docker thing in there to, to get you to run it on, on uh, rubybench.org, which, wonderful guys, the rubybench.org folks, it, it's, it's lovely to have that kind of visibility, but they have the same kind of problem. They've got a big tooling-heavy thing without enough people to maintain it, and so it's very hard for them to keep up to date with all the changes. Yeah. So, yeah. I have something smart to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I promise you that if you sat down with the code for a little bit, you would have an easy time finding something that made me look dumb. So just take that as read. Uh, one of the things about a lot of code that's being maintained by, by several people that are all, all kind of rushed is um, if you want to feel smarter than me, which is not a bad project, it's, it's, worth, it, it's worth sitting down and doing. <laughs> Reading some of my code will give you a lot of that right off the bat. <laughs> I think that's generally true of just about everybody. Yeah. Well, I tend to say if your code looks really good, if your code looks so good somebody can't sit down and poke holes in it, you're writing too slow. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've been in startups a long time. I've been working in startups <laughs> for quite a while. Um, one of the things that I think of as one of Ruby's enormous strengths is that it is really good for writing and replacing throwaway code. Ruby kind of gave us the useful descendant of the old Perl version, where if your tests are good enough, you don't have to be able to read the code. <laughs> well, if you have really good unit tests, you can replace an entire component. There was a wonderful uh, Chad Fowler keynote at RubyConf, uh, not, not RailsConf that just finished, but RubyConf longer ago, uh, which was basically that. If you have really good tests in between your components and over top of the whole thing, you actually want your components to be something you can just rewrite in another language day to day to day. He, he was talking about how he had a little component that he wrote in Haskell, and it took you know other people writing three different other implementations to eventually be able to replace it. And that was a sign. I mean, yeah, okay, it felt good at the time, but that was a sign something was broken. Because if his component is that hard to replace, it's also going to be that hard to maintain. It's also going to be, you know, you, you need that, the level of understanding that three people have just failed to do one after another. That's usually a sign that you spec that piece poorly. Makes sense to me. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android. And all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat 
and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. Uh, I got a couple of picks. First is a game, uh, Marvel Strike Force. It's really awesome. I've been addicted to it for the past week. Uh, superheroes punching other superheroes and stuff. So a lot of fun. Uh, and then also GitLab. I'm a huge fan of GitHub, but at the same time, I have a lot of personal repositories that I want to keep around. So GitLab is a self-hosted, or you can use their cloud hosting, uh, code repository, very similar to GitHub, a lot of different integrations and stuff. Yeah, I use GitLab for my private code now as well. Uh, David, do you have some picks for us? I do. Uh, last week, we talked about how I had to figure out how to use Docker more. <laughs> Fits great with what Noah is saying. <laughs> and so <laughs> I went and I took a course and I bought two books, read through one of them, and they're all by Nigel Poulton. And he's amazing. And uh, so the, my pick today is Docker Deep Dive by Nigel Poulton. And he not only goes through, hey, this is you know how, how you do it, why you do it, but he gets you into the deep deeper stuff about high availability and overlay networks and really how you do it well, you know, and at scale. And so, and very, very accessible. So definitely a uh, Docker deep dive. And my second pick today is a book by Ray Dalio, uh, Principles, Life and Work. And we've been talking about that throughout the episode today about writing down what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and just getting clear so that I can, you know, combine my knowledge with other people's and and keep keep raising the bar with whatever I'm working on. Awesome. Uh, Catherine, what are your picks? Uh, my first is a book by Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown called Hacking Growth, which I finished last month at work at a work book club because uh, we are starting a growth and strategy team that kind of mimics what they teach in this book. And it's all about fast iterations um, to experiment with user acquisition, retention, um, and conversion. And it's just a really interesting book that gets you to think about your product in a in a different way, in a more nuanced way, which and it was well written. Um, my second is a little bit more of a fun pick. It's http.cat. I don't know if y'all have heard of this, <laughs> but if ever you're thinking like, oh my goodness, I forget what a 404 is. I just can't seem to find it in my mind. You get it? You get what I just did there? Find not found. Um, so <laughs> a website that tells you in cat form what all the HTTP status codes are. Nice. Um, let me jump in here with a couple of pics as well. Um, so for my wife's birthday, which was in February, um, just had a terrific time um, playing, or I bought her a game that we've had a terrific time playing. Sorry, I, I just got back from NGConf and my brain's kind of fried. Um, it's Harry Potter uh, Hogwarts Battles. And I'm sure some people have just totally turned their brains off. He said Harry Potter. I don't care. But it's a deck building game and the mechanics are actually really great. Um, it's, it's fun if you like Harry Potter too because you kind of get that flavor to it. But um, it's, it's just been a really, really fun game to play. And we've... Um, it, it's a progressive game as well. So the first game or the first... So year one you have a starting deck and you know each player has a starting deck and it's collaborative so you're trying to just or um defeat all the villains and 
you just have a basic set of cards and a basic set of rules. And then year two, you add some stuff in, right? And then year three, you add more stuff in. And year four, you add more stuff in. Um, so we've been playing it with my kids. Um, my nine-year-old can play it fine, mostly. At year seven, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of. And so we kind of have to do that for her. But um, my 10-year-old and my 12-year-old seem to have no problem with it. But at the same time, it's also, you know, the mechanics are such to where it's a challenge. It's fun. You really have to work together. And so we've really, really been enjoying it. So um, I'm going to pick that. And then um, I also, um, I was just at NGConf. And if you're interested in hearing from some people who are doing interesting stuff on the front end, um, you can definitely check that out. If you go to devchat.tv slash YouTube, um, I actually interviewed a bunch of the speakers at the conference. I'm trying to do that more. I think I've got things lined up so I can do that at FluentConf, which is a front-end development conference. And I'm trying to line something up so that I can go out to Ruby Kaigi and do it. Um, you know, and so just you know, interview the speakers, you know, see what they talked about, give you a flavor for their talk, as well as just talk to them about whatever they've got going on. And so I've, I've been enjoying that as well. Um, it's, it's especially interesting to me now that Ruby rogues and my Ruby story are basically booked out into like September and we're recording this at the end of April. So, um, I just want to be able to create more content and I feel like I've kind of saturated this channel as, as much as I can with, you know, bookings and stuff. So anyway, if you have any other Ruby conferences that you want to see interviews from, or people you want to see interviews, you know, from, you know, either with the panel or just myself, uh, let me know um, because that will all be just a ton of fun. And if you're going to be at any of those conferences, let me know because I love meeting people. You're speaking and at Ruby Hack, right? I am speaking at Ruby Hack. Yeah. But I'm not interviewing speakers at Ruby Hack because uh, that, that, those two days keep getting filled with more and more stuff. And my wife is actually going to a conference the same two days. And so part of that is just farming out my kids. And uh, my nine-year-old is, her class is putting on a production of Alice in Wonderland on Friday. And so I'm actually going to miss part of the conference because I, I like her better than I like Rubyists. Sorry. But yeah, so uh, hopefully I can be, you know, meet people for dinner and stuff like that on Thursday and stuff like that. And I'm the last speaker on Thursday. So anyway, so if you'll be at Ruby Hack, let me know. Um, I don't know if any of the rest of the panel is going to be at Ruby Hack. Um, I won't be at Ruby Hack, but I'll see you at Ruby Kagi. That's actually the first conference I'm doing after my uh, my baby was born. Nice. I don't know if I'm going to make it yet. I'm still looking for somebody to sponsor the trip because um, I cannot afford the airline ticket. Um, I could probably pay for everything else, but um, yeah. Anyway. Um, but that said, yeah, if I can make it out, that would just be awesome. Um, and you get kind of a different group of people going out to Ruby Kaigi. It's kind of a mix of the uh, usual, usual suspects in the U.S. and the Japanese community and the core team. And so you get a really, really interesting just blend of different topics and things like that. So um, I would love to just represent that and give folks that don't usually get exposed to that an opportunity to see who these people are. So anyway, if that makes any sense, that's kind of what I'm after. 
The other thing I'll say about Ruby Kaiki is, especially in recent years, it's hard to get the really crunchy, down-in-the-bits, hardcore programming talks mm-hmm. accepted at most conferences. And Ruby Kaiki is still just wall-to-wall that. And so if you want to get some of that, Ruby Kaiki is, is the big remaining place to do it. That's true. They usually manage to get Matt and maybe one or two of the core team members at RubyConf. But even then, they don't seem to go as deep as they do at Ruby Kaigi. So, yeah, I'll, I'll back that up. And I've been wanting to go to that conference for years. So, anyway, in fact, Noah, why don't you go ahead and just chime in with some picks? Sure. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of uh, teaching myself to draw lately. It's one of those things where when my focus isn't quite strong enough to do the, the really heavy programming with the, with the baby, um, it's still something where I can train my hand. Uh, so I'll say for those of you who haven't been keeping up, as I hadn't, the low-end, really cheap Wacom tablet for, you know, as a drawing input device is down to 80 bucks. Oh, wow. Like, for, given that it's a computer peripheral, practically pocket change. And so if you've been thinking, eh, you know, maybe, but I don't want to spend 600 bucks on it, you're in luck. 600 bucks is an amazing one these days. Like, the, the price has just dropped through the floor. So now you know. Uh, and I love... I, Lovely thing about drawing, you don't have to use the electronic stuff. Any drawing tutorial from, you know, the last few thousand years is great. Um, but I'm really enjoying the YouTube Draw with Jazza thing. It's a, it's an Australian guy who is perky and upbeat, and he loves drawing, you know, cartoony characters with lots of dark outlines. Like, he's great. But Draw with Jazza, highly recommend it. Um, and then this week in technical stuff, uh, there's a Jessica Kerr essay that has been going around uh, the origins of opera and the future of programming. Um, yeah, I see another thumbs up. Yeah, somebody else has read it. Excellent. Um, it's a great essay. It's kind of hard to sum up because she goes through a bunch of different topics one after the other, and every one of those topics is wonderful and worth your time. Great. Yeah, Jessica Kerr is a former rogue, so yeah, some of our listeners will be familiar with her. All right, Noah, if people want to look into what you're doing these days, I'm assuming you're on Twitter, GitHub, maybe you have, you have blog at engineering.appfolio.com. Yeah, uh, I don't, don't do a lot of blogging on my personal blog these days because almost everything is engineering.appfolio.com. That's a great place to start. Uh, I am on Twitter as Codefolio, C-O-D-E-F-O-L-I-O. Uh, amusingly, the Codefolio, Appfolio thing is a complete coincidence. It was true before I'd ever heard of them. Uh, yeah. And so those are, those are both great places to look me up. I'm on GitHub as Noah Gibbs. Uh, and most of the stuff that you'd want to see there, it's easy to find through the, uh, through the Appfolio blog or through my Twitter. Very cool. Well, uh, we'll make sure we get links to that in the show notes. If you can just put it in the chat, we'll get it over there. Um, but thanks for coming, Noah. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be here. Great conversation. Thank you. All right. We'll wrap this one up and we will catch everyone next week. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.